The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4, The Medieval World. Episode 42, The Battle of Rio Salado. This week's episode focuses on the 1340 battle in the far south of the Iberian Peninsula called the Battle of Rio Salado, anglicised as the River Salado, and alternatively referred to as the Battle of Tarifa. It is categorised within the wider story of the Reconquista, the gradual Christian reconquest of the Iberian Peninsula following the invasion of Islamic cultures from the 8th century. This battle saw a Christian coalition of Iberian kingdoms attempt to resist the invasion of an Islamic coalition, which included a huge army from Moroccan lands who crossed the Strait of Gibraltar. Firstly, Let's have a look at the history of the area of the southernmost point of Europe that overlooks this historically important strait of water. The Battle of Rio Salado took place during the 14th century, right at the southern tip of the modern country of Spain. This is the place where the Mediterranean Sea meets the Atlantic Ocean. It is also where Europe faces Africa at the Strait of Gibraltar. It is certainly believed that this area of Europe was one of the last Neanderthal strongholds between 30 and 40,000 years ago. After the extinction of the Neanderthals, European Stone Age cultures developed until the Neolithic Revolution brought farming into Europe. The very south of Spain is called Andalusia, and this area of Spain, like many others, takes its specific identity very seriously. These days, it's an autonomous community, but Andalusians also respect their historical Andalusian distinction. Andalusia stood on the brink of one of the greatest waterway trade routes, and as such would have been privy to the materials changing hands in prehistoric and ancient Europe. As such, pottery cultures emerged and then Bronze Age cultures in the post-Neolithic millenniums. The ancient Greek historian Herodotus refers to the lands either side of the Strait of Gibraltar as the Pillars of Heracles. He wrote that beyond the Pillars was the lands of the Tartessos, a civilization which apparently benefited from the metal-rich trade of these waterways being expertly exploited by the Phoenicians and the Greeks. Knowledge of the Tartessos culture is limited, but they are thought to have possessed a unique language which evolved to be the one spoken by the Turdetani, a culture reportedly occupying the southernmost Iberian lands when the Carthaginians invaded the peninsula. 
the Carthaginians took control of the Strait of Gibraltar during the 6th century, allowing them to oversee the transport of British tin through the waterway, an important ingredient of contemporary bronze production. The Carthaginians would maintain control of this waterway for over 300 years. By this time, the Romans had grown to become a political rival of the Carthaginians and their contests against each other resulted in the Carthaginians being expelled from the Iberian Peninsula. The tribes of the south would become subject to the Romans until the Romans took direct control of the far south. The peoples of this region when the Romans took control were Iberian and Punic. Even before the arrival of the Carthaginians, the Punic influence existed due to the numerous Phoenician trading colonies along the South Iberian coast. The Romans brought some political order to the tribes of this area when they declared the far south as the province of Hispania Baetica, one of three Roman provinces of Hispania. The Roman Empire split into two during the 4th century and Iberia was under Western Roman influence as a consequence. It didn't take long for the Western Roman Empire to begin to collapse and it was the numerous Germanic tribes of Central Europe who would filter into the lands of the Western Roman Empire, with Iberia being no exception. It would be the Selingi Vandals who would occupy the far south. The Romans had not given up on their Iberian territories and they subsequently sponsored a military movement from the Visigoths, another Germanic tribe, against the Germanic tribes in Iberia. This eventually caused the Selingi to cross the Strait of Gibraltar and establish a Vandal kingdom in the lands of North Africa. Roman weakness allowed another Germanic tribe called the Suevi to expand from their stronghold in the Galician lands of the peninsula. Once again, the Romans had to commission the Visigoths to help them to reclaim these lands. It was only a matter of time before the Visigoths realised that they were a greater power of Hispania and they forced the Romans out of the Iberian peninsula, taking control for themselves. The area of Andalusia in the south of the peninsula was often the target for invasions due to its geographical significance and position. Cultures in Africa would look to expand into the fertile Andalusian lands and gain control of the important Straits of Gibraltar. Even though the Visigoths dominated the lands of the Iberian Peninsula during the middle centuries of the first millennium, the successor state to the classical Roman Empire, known to us today as the Byzantine Empire, had ambitions of reclaiming lost Roman lands, including those in classical Hispania. The Byzantines invaded southern Iberia and established a province called Spania. It would be less than a century before the Visigoths reconquered the territory, however. By the beginning of the 8th century, a new political movement based on the relatively modern religious movement called Islam had expanded from its heartlands in the Middle East right the way across the entire width of North Africa to the Strait of Gibraltar. The dynasty controlling this vast Islamic state were the Umayyads, 
and one of the military commanders of the Umayyad forces on the African side of the Strait of Gibraltar was a man called Tariq ibn Ziyad. He crossed over the strait to what we now call the Rock of Gibraltar. In fact, the name Gibraltar is derived from the Arabic phrase for the mounting of Tariq. Another Umayyad military chief during this campaign into Iberia was a man called Tarif ibn Malik. Tariq may have personally sent Tarif on a military reconnaissance mission across the southern coast of Andalusia. And this may have been when the town of Tarifa, named in honour of Tarif ibn Malik, was established at the southernmost tip of Andalusia. The alternative name for this week's battle, the Battle of Rio Salado, is the Battle of Tarifa. The Crown of Castile The Crown of Castile was recognised as a part of a political union between the kingdoms of Castile and Leon, created in the 13th century. Previous to this, the Kingdom of Castile had been independent, but throughout the history of Castile, it had had a constantly changing relationship with its neighbours and in particular with Leon. Both of these entities, along with others, had emerged from the previous Kingdom of Asturias, which had been established on the northern coast of the Iberian Peninsula following the Umayyad conquest of Visigothic Hispania during the 8th century, something that had involved both Tariq ibn Ziyad and Tarif ibn Malik, both of whom we mentioned in the previous section. Asturias was the last stronghold of the displaced Visigoths, and a territory which the Umayyads had failed to conquer during their dramatic conquest. The stubborn resistance of the Asturians is recognised as the beginning of the Reconquista, a centuries-long quest to reclaim the Iberian lands from this Muslim invasion. The Visigoths had been Christianised before the arrival of the Umayyads, and therefore Asturias is recognised as the remains of Christian control in the Iberian Peninsula. And often this Christian identity was used to consolidate the various tribes, counties and kingdoms that followed this period in history when they were attacking the lands of Al-Andalus, which is the name of the Muslim territory of the Iberian Peninsula, regardless of which Islamic dynastic movements were in control of the various lands over the centuries. Although the Islamic dynasties maintained control of the majority of the Iberian lands, the Asturians were able to expand their influence and diversify, and in order to resist their Muslim neighbours, the Asturians would establish more localised rule over their territory, and this would establish the beginnings of a Castilian identity. The first signs of a specific Portuguese identity emerged at a similar time by similar means. It may be the case that the Asturians depopulated the lands that would become Castile, before fortifying them and repopulating them. Asturias would morph to become the Kingdom of Leon, and the lands of Castile would be subject to Leon. But with its vulnerable location on the eastern fringes of the Leonese Kingdom, and its unique identity and demographic, Castile would soon earn a degree of autonomy. This would represent the beginnings of Castile as an emerging power, 
as the Leonese began to recognise the growing strength of the Castilians, they tried to suppress their abilities, but this would also prompt troublesome rebellions. The Christian realms of northern Iberia struggled to exist harmoniously as they jostled for supremacy over one another, and Castile was in the thick of all these politics. Marriage alliances and succession crises led to a situation where Castile would actually be recognised as a kingdom in its own right, and a king of Castile also becoming the king of Leon for the first time historically. This meant that Leon was now a subject of Castile. Despite Leon and Castile being politically linked to each other, their individual crowns and ethnicities always meant that the two realms did not feel comfortable being subject to the other though. The Leonese would take control of their own affairs again. But this would not stop the Castilians from pursuing their ambitions. The highly influential Taifa of Toledo was conquered by the Castilians, meaning that they were in control of the centre of the Iberian Peninsula. This was a huge political victory, not just for the Castilians, but for Christendom in the Iberian Peninsula, as this was the first time since the Umayyad conquest of the Visigoths that Christianity seemed to be the dominant religion on the peninsula. Muslim movements from the lands of the Maghreb would attempt to reassert Islam as a powerful force in Iberia, and these movements would come in the form of the Almoravids first, and then their conquerors, the Almohads. Neither of these movements made a significant impact on the political situation on the entire peninsula, and after the collapse of the Almohads, the crowns of Leon and Castile were reunited. They would absorb more Al-Andalus lands, meaning that there was no Islamic taifa in Iberia that was not subject to a Christian state. And this was now the second half of the 13th century. The Kingdom of Portugal By the second half of the 13th century, the Castilians controlled a large part of the Iberian Peninsula from the north coast all the way down to the Muslim emirate controlling the south coast, that of Granada. The east coast was under the control of the Aragonese, who had extended their influence southwards as far as the kingdom of Murcia, formerly a Muslim taifa, now under the suzerainty of the Castilians. On the west coast, apart from the kingdom of Galicia, another subject of the Castilians, was the independent kingdom of Portugal, which by now was occupying the lands very similar to those of the modern country of Portugal. During the 9th century, the Asturians, who as we know were the remnants of the Visigothic kingdom after the invasion and conquest by the Umayyad Caliphate, decided to acquire lands along the west coast of the Iberian Peninsula as far down as the Douro River. The Douro River flows into the Atlantic Ocean and at the mouth of the river is a settlement which served as a very important trade port dating back to ancient times. The settlement was known as Portuscale and is at the same location as the modern city of Porto. 
The area up to the Douro River was given the name Portugal, after the port city, and this would evolve to become the modern name Portugal. Portugal spent much of its earliest existence as a vassal state to the Kingdom of Leon, but it always retained a degree of autonomy. Portugal expanded southward to subsume the county of Coimbra during the 11th century. The following century, the Portuguese nobles declared the young prince Afonso Henriquez as their king, and this would lead Afonso to go on to declare Portugal as independent from Leon in the year 1139. With the collapse of the Almoravids, a powerful Islamic movement occupying lands in the south of the Iberian Peninsula, came the opportunity for the Portuguese to expand their territory southwards. As this was around the time of the Second Crusade, the Portuguese received help from Crusader warriors and together the city of Lisbon was conquered. The city would become the Portuguese capital from the 13th century. Following the collapse of the Almohad Empire, the Portuguese expanded even further southwards by taking the Algarve and therefore expanding their kingdom to the south coast and obtaining the territory that would resemble the modern Portuguese mainland borders. The Emirates of Granada the Castilians helped to establish the kingdoms of Seville and Murcia in the south of the Iberian Peninsula during the 13th century at the expense of Islamic taifas previously there. This meant that the last Muslim territory remaining in the Iberian Peninsula was the Emirate of Granada. Since the disastrous defeat of the Almohads at the Battle of Las Navas de Tolosa in 1212, centralised rule of the Al-Andalus was becoming fragile. Rebellions from within Taifas caused local rulers to emerge and some of the Taifas to be subjugated by the Christian kingdoms. Muhammad ibn Yusuf was a statesman in Al-Andalus in the aftermath of the battle and he would battle against other Muslim leaders to gain control of territories. It would be thanks to his efforts that the last remaining Al-Andalus territories under Muslim rule would be united as the Emirate of Granada. Muhammad ibn Yusuf would become the Sultan of Granada, referred to historically as Muhammad I. He would be the first of the Nazarid dynasty of rulers of Granada. Muhammad would show intelligent diplomacy that would save Al-Andalus in the face of ambitious Castilians because he would have to concede a level of Castilian overlordship in order to maintain a peaceful truce. After Muhammad's death as an old man, his emirate would pass down to his son who would rule as Muhammad II and so would follow sultans who would continue to pay tribute to the Castilians in order to maintain a peaceful relationship. In the earliest years of the reign of Muhammad II, the Castilians would be looking to renegotiate their deal with the Nasrids, but the Nasrids also had their eye on developments going on, on the other side of the Strait of Gibraltar. The Marinid Sultanate 
At the start of the 13th century, the Almohads of North Africa had control of the lands on both sides of the Strait of Gibraltar. The Castilians met them in battle at the Battle of Las Navas de Tolosa in the year 1212 and dealt the Almohads a devastating defeat which aided the steep decline of the Almohads as a power. From within Moroccan lands, one of the Berber tribes who had supported the Almohads decided to seize their opportunity to challenge the Almohads. They were the Marinids, who had migrated from the east into the realms of the Almohads. The Almohads were originally able to pacify the Marinids, but over time the Almohads weakened and the Marinids were able to take key cities one by one until the eventual fall of Marrakesh in 1269, which put an end to Almohad rule. The dominance of the Marinids in the Moroccan lands must have been a concern for the Granadans, who recognised that the Marinids would likely have ambitions to control the trade traffic sailing through the Strait of Gibraltar. So the Granadans would offer the Marinids the lands under the control of the city of Algeciras. The Granadans had required the assistance of the Marinids in order to resist some Castilian raids, so Algeciras could be seen as a payment for services. This would trouble the Castilians who feared losing control of the Strait of Gibraltar to the Marinids, as it suited the Castilians better to leave these lands under the control of the Granadans, as the Granadans were paying tribute to the Castilians. After some time, the Castilians made a move to win back control of the strait. They besieged the city of Tarifa and took control of it, and this would ultimately send the Marinids back across the strait to North Africa. King Alfonso XI of Castile The king of the Castilians when the Marinids were expelled from the Iberian Peninsula was Sancho IV. Sancho died in his thirties and the crown of Castile passed down to his nine-year-old son who would rule as Ferdinand IV. Ferdinand was protected by his mother during his minority and when he reached adulthood he ruled competently until his own mysterious death while only in his twenties. Ferdinand would be succeeded by his one-year-old son in the year 1312 and he would rule as Alfonso XI. Alfonso's minority encouraged a number of regents to attempt to influence the fortunes of Castile. There was a very real danger of Castile weakening due to the greed of particular individuals and the regular skirmishes between the Castilians and the Granadans would not come without expense. When Alfonso reached his majority, he would show a ruthless desire to restore royal power and influence, even executing some of those who attempted to operate against his will. Afonso IV of Portugal King Denis of Portugal had done much to bring the Kingdom of Portugal up to the same level of prestige as the other Christian kingdoms of the Iberian Peninsula. His legitimate son, Afonso, was not favoured by his father to succeed him. 
Instead, King Denis favoured his illegitimate son, Afonso Sanchez, and this would bring the two half-brothers into conflict with each other, undoubtedly augmenting the Infante Afonso's political guile. After the death of King Denis in the year 1325, the Infante Afonso was able to overcome his political rivals to claim the crown of Portugal. There was an interest between the two kingdoms of Portugal and Castile to maintain a peaceful relationship and there was no better way than through political marriages. Although King Alfonso XI of Castile was already on the throne when Infante Afonso became King Afonso IV of Portugal, King Alfonso of Castile was around 20 years younger than King Afonso of Portugal. King Afonso's daughter, Maria of Portugal, would be married to King Alfonso of Castile. Alfonso of Castile had already been married to a Castilian female of nobility called Constanza, but Alfonso had the marriage annulled. When Alfonso of Castile married Maria of Portugal, he didn't take long to take a mistress, and this would be shameful for Maria and would infuriate King Afonso of Portugal, her father. So King Alfonso of Castile was not making himself popular with his behaviour at all. King Afonso of Portugal arranged for his son and heir, Peter, to be married to the embarrassed wife of King Alfonso of Castile, Constanza, and then he would wage war against the Castilians. Abu al-Hassan Ali of the Marinids By the time that the Marinids had gained control of Moroccan lands from the Almohads in the 13th century, there were two other major kingdoms in the Maghreb. The Almohads had instated the Hafsids to control the coastal lands of modern Tunisia and eastern Algeria. The collapse of the Almohads had enabled the Zayanids, a Berber dynasty, to establish a kingdom centred on the city of Tlemcen. Abu al-Hassan Ali became the Marinid Sultan in 1331 after the death of his father, Abu Said Uthman. Abu al-Hassan inherited a sultanate that had recently witnessed a positive aggression on the Iberian side of the Strait of Gibraltar by the Castilians, who had gained control of the strategically important peninsula city of Gibraltar. So very early on in his reign, Abu al-Hassan ordered an attack on Gibraltar with the encouragement of the Granadans, and Gibraltar was starved into submission. Abu al-Hassan then turned his attentions to the situation in North Africa. Abu al-Hassan was actually married to a Hafsid princess called Fatima, so when the Zayanids attacked the Hafsids, Abu al-Hassan turned his aggressions on the Zayanids and besieged the city of Tlemcen for two years until it fell to the Marinids. Abu al-Hassan had built himself a reputation for being an effective and successful sultan. Yusuf I of Granada 
After the Maronids took control of Gibraltar in 1333 with the assistance of the Granadans, the 18-year-old Sultan of Granada, Mohammed IV, was assassinated while travelling back home. This brought his 15-year-old brother to rule Granada as Yusuf I. Yusuf was born in the Alhambra, a palace complex constructed by the first Sultan of Granada, Muhammad I, almost a hundred years previous. In the earliest years of his reign, he was allowed limited powers, but the Granadans were able to secure a peace treaty with the Castilians, the Marinids and the Aragonese, which would enable the vulnerable state of Granada some ability to exist peacefully in between all of these mighty neighbours. On the expiration of the treaty, Yusuf would align himself to Abu al-Hassan and the Marinids. Abu al-Hassan had ambitions to restore a Marinid territory on the Iberian side of the Strait of Gibraltar to make up for the loss of one during the 13th century. Prelude to the Battle Abu al-Hassan of the Marinids wanted to force the Castilians out of their territories in the south of the peninsula and Yusuf of Granada was right behind him. Abu al-Hassan appeared to have some genuine disdain for the Castilians and declared a jihad, in other words a holy war, against the infidels of Castile. Marinids were already raiding Castilian lands in 1339, the year before the battle. Alfonso of Castile was suitably concerned for his possessions and he felt that he would need the support of other nations in order to combat the great Marinid ruler. He was at odds with Afonso of Portugal as described earlier in the episode, but the Marinids were not just a threat to the Castilians, but also would likely become a threat to the Portuguese, especially to their highly valued and sought after lands of the Algarve. So Alfonso and Afonso oversaw the signing of a peace treaty in the city of Seville between the Castilians and the Portuguese. The Pope Benedict XII called for a crusade against the Muslim invaders and this would likely have been when the Marinid naval fleet bested the Castilian galleys in the Strait of Gibraltar which enabled Abu al-Hassan to bring his entire army over the sea with little aggression levelled towards them. Pope Benedict's declaration of a crusade would bring financial donations to Alfonso of Castile, something that he would desperately need in the face of the Marinid invasion. With Algeciras and Gibraltar under Muslim control, the next target was the town of Tarifa, and capturing Tarifa would bring all of the closest coasts of Iberia to Morocco under Muslim control, which would enable ease of supply across the strait. Alfonso of Castile linked up with Afonso of Portugal to assemble their troops and plan to break the siege that Abu al-Hassan had placed on Tarifa. The Christian coalition not only needed to gather as many fighters as possible, but would not be able to waste time stalling an attack due to there being limited supplies. As is often the case with historical battles, we have to take the estimated number of troops with a questioning mind. Some of the numbers put forward in contemporary texts can suggest hundreds of thousands of infantrymen, 
and we really don't see numbers as high as that too often. A garrison of around a thousand troops were stationed in the besieged Tarifa and the Castilians may have brought together approximately 20,000 infantry and knights who may have been supported by around a thousand Portuguese knights. The Granadans may have had several thousand knights themselves but there is an estimate of 60,000 Marinids. If this is true then the Marinids had their enemies vastly outnumbered. Alfonso sent a contingent of his troops to support the garrison at Tarifa, while the Muslim coalition withdrew from Tarifa to assume a battle formation. Abu al-Hassan commanded the centre of the Muslim coalition, with Yusuf and his Granadans on the right flank of the formation, where they would be directly facing the left flank of the Christian coalition which contained Alfonso and his Portuguese troops the infantry armed with crossbow and lances. Interestingly, there is evidence of some minor number of Christians fighting on the Muslim side and vice versa. The Battle of Rio Salado It is difficult to know how much in history is written by writers seeking to glorify aspects of a campaign for their own political or ideological means. But we can say that this particular battle is often overlooked in favour of others in terms of its importance in the history of the Iberian Peninsula. Just how much religion was a primary factor in this battle is highly debatable. Certainly the Christian kingdoms of Castile and Portugal had struggled to see eye to eye with each other in the years leading up to the battle. Also, the Emirate of Granada were not fussy in those years about who they reached out to for support, whether it be the Muslim Marinids or the Christian Castilians, just so long as they were supported. Certainly religion was used by leaders of their respective nations as a rallying call and a motivator. A relic of the true cross, a fragment of the cross used for Jesus Christ's crucifixion, was reportedly held aloft by a priest dressed in white robes riding a white mule, while a fragment of the Prophet Muhammad's clothing was reportedly worn in a necklace around the neck of Abu al-Hassan. It is likely that had the religious identities of all involved not been accentuated in the build-up, the force that binded the different factions on either side of the battlefield would not have existed, so it may have been a necessary requirement. Not a huge amount is known about the actual battle itself, and this could be a reason why it is not talked about a whole lot more. It is possible that the decision of Alfonso XI of Castile to send a large number of troops to bolster the garrison at Tarifa was highly inspired with the Christian coalition possibly outnumbered by three troops to one, Alfonso was under pressure to make something happen. So on the morning of the 30th of October 1340, he sent his right-hand flank over the river Salado to push the Marinid left flank. Alfonso himself was involved in the push, which had ambitions of reaching and attacking the Marinid encampment. 
but when Alfonso reached the camp, he found that he was left wanting for numbers due to the greatness of the Marinid army. This is where Alfonso's decision to add to the numbers of the garrison at Tarifa paid dividends. The garrison was looking to attack the Muslim encampment from the rear, but when they learned of Alfonso's situation in the middle of the battlefield, rather than the Castilians being surrounded, it turned out that the Marinids were surrounded. While this was taking place, more Castilians managed to cross the Salado and turn the tables on the Marinids. When Afonso and the Portuguese also crossed over, the Granadans fled the battlefield, but they were not the only ones to flee. Many of the Marinid defenders of the encampment had also fled amidst the pressure of defending the camp from all sides. The Christian coalition pursued the fleeing Muslims, which included Abu al-Hassan and Yusuf, who all ended up in the city of Al-Hasiras. They had abandoned the Marinid encampment at Tarifa and left it to its fate, and the Castilians showed no mercy. Many were not spared regardless of gender, age or noble status. Women and children would be slaughtered, and even the Sultan Abu al-Hassan's wife Fatima, the valuable Hafsid princess whose heritage had linked the two nations of North Africa. It was an absolute disaster for the Marinids and the Granadans, and a great victory for the Castilians and the Portuguese. Aftermath Abu al-Hassan very quickly moved from Algeciras to Gibraltar and then across the strait to Ceuta on African soil. This would be the last time that an African invasion of Iberia took place after many Muslim invasions over the centuries, including by the Umayyads, the Almoravids, the Almohads and finally the Marinids. Around four years after the battle, King Alfonso XI of Castile was able to take the city of Algeciras back from the Muslims, but Gibraltar would elude him, remaining in Granadan hands. Despite Alfonso's great victory against the odds against the Marinids, he had a reputation for being a heartless man. The treatment of the Marinid camp was a demonstration of his cold character and he showed no respect to his wife Maria, the daughter of the Portuguese king. Eventually, he would succumb to an enemy that he couldn't defeat. The 1340s is marked in history as the decade where the Black Death spread rapidly westwards across the continent of Europe. Alfonso was besieging Gibraltar over the turn of the year 1350 when he contracted the disease, a version of the bubonic plague, and it would take his life at the young age of 38. The Granadan Sultan Yusuf I would order his troops to respectfully not attack the funerary procession back to Seville after the siege of Gibraltar was called off following Alfonso's death. Abu al-Hassan's ambitions of conquest in Iberia were over, but he still had a dominant position in North Africa. This was due to him having taken the city of Tlemcen from his eastern neighbours the Zeanids before the Battle of Rio Salado. A succession crisis in the Hafsid kingdom 
enabled Abu al-Hassan to extend his influence across the entire Maghreb. However, the extension to a Marinid empire was untenable as the local tribes revolted against Marinid rule, and this prompted Abu al-Hassan's son, Abu Aynan Faris, to make a bid for power against his father. Abu al-Hassan had to flee to the Atlas Mountains where he abdicated his throne and then he eventually died in 1351 in his 50s. Yusuf of Granada can be easily overlooked as a leader of note but the reality was that he was a considerable leader of a nation sandwiched between the powerful kingdoms of the Castilians and the Marinids. With the expulsion of the Marinids from Iberia, Yusuf felt little value in his relationship with Abu al-Hassan as he desperately tried to defend his western lands against the aggressions of the Castilians. He lost the city of Al-Hasiras but managed to save Gibraltar, even though he had a bit of luck from the Black Death taking the life of the aggressive Castilian king, Alfonso XI. Yusuf was assassinated by a madman while taking his prayers at Eid in the year 1354 at the Alhambra in Granada, the place of his birth. He was only 36 years old, but his wiliness as a ruler had prevented the Emirate of Granada being wiped off the map. King Afonso IV's later years were caught up with internal problems. The distrust between the kingdoms of Portugal and Castile continued after the Battle of Rio Salado, but after the death of King Alfonso XI of Castile, the Castilians were plunged into civil unrest. King Afonso IV had his own problems to deal with as his son, Peter, the heir to the Portuguese throne, entered into a relationship with his wife's lady-in-waiting, which endangered the relationship between the Portuguese royal family and the Portuguese nobility. Afonso had the lady-in-waiting executed, which angered Peter. Peter attempted to battle his father, but he was unsuccessful. Nonetheless, Peter still became the king, as Afonso died in 1357 at the age of 66. By the 15th century, the Kingdom of Portugal had gained so much power and influence that they were attempting to cross the waterways and invade the territories of the Marinids. But the Marinids were under threat from the Watassids of the smaller cities and the country, and the Watassids themselves threw all of their energy into the overthrow of the Marinids in 1465. This did allow more Portuguese influence over the territory, but it did mean that the Watassids had ended the Marinid rule of Moroccan lands. Not long after, and the Castilians and the Aragonese made a series of campaigns into the Emirate of Granada. Granada by this time did not have the solidarity that it had had under the rule of Yusuf in the previous century. There were civil disputes and the territory had been drained of its finances by the war and by the heavy tributes being paid to Castile. In 1492, Granada was forced to surrender itself to the Christian coalition. This marked the end of the Reconquista, something that had been instigated 
after the kingdom of Asturias established itself following the Umayyad invasion of Iberia way back in the 8th century. The coalition between Castile and Aragon was firmly established by the marriage between King Ferdinand II of Aragon to Queen Isabella I of Castile. This unification of the two crowns is cited by historians as the beginnings of the recognition of the Kingdom of Spain, but the two crowns continued to exist until the Nueva Planta decrees in the early 18th century formally ceded Aragonese properties to the Castilian crown. In 1580, the crown of Portugal was also united to those of Castile and Aragon when the Habsburgs monarchs held all three crowns simultaneously in a period referred to as the Iberian Union. Each of the three kingdoms retained their own governments and identities during this period, but the power of the Iberian Union as a united force enabled the constituents to prosper during the Age of Exploration. The Portuguese would revolt against the Union during the following century, which would lead to its restoration as an independent kingdom, and the Iberian Peninsula, with its two modern nations of Spain and Portugal, would resemble how we know it to look today. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode, um, which symbolises the end of the Reconquista. And uh, it was on the subject of the Battle of Rio Salado. Um, Quite an epic, this one. There was many parties at play. It wasn't just a simple battle between one nation and another. It was one coalition against another coalition and the, the complex politics behind it. So well done if you kept up with it. And I hope you enjoyed it. It's a very, very uh, significant battle in my mind. Uh, but we don't often see it written about enough. So uh, it's my pleasure to bring that to you. And I hope you appreciated it. The Ancient World Cup. The Ancient World Cup is a competition that has been created by the History of the World podcast for you. And uh, it's uh, played on our social media pages. Uh, it originally started with 64 teams and uh, by a process of voting each week, we've now narrowed that down to the final 16. And in actual fact, we're now finding out who the quarter finalists are. Uh, so uh, we've already found out that the Macedonians, the Franks, the ancient Egyptians, the Sumerians and the Romans have advanced to the quarterfinals. But we now need to find out who the sixth team uh, will be out of the eight quarterfinalists. And the match will take place between the Parthians and the Anglo-Saxons. Now, the Parthians, of course, were the, um, were the, the, the people who conquered um, the Seleucid Empire. So the Seleucids were really the, um, the Hellenistic version of uh, the Persian Empire. Uh, what replaced the Achaemenid Persians. And uh, when the Seleucids were squeezed out, they were squeezed out by the Parthians who came from, um, who came from the north. And um, they, they really did fight back against the aggressions of the Romans when the Romans were at their absolute peak 
under the emperor um, Hadrian and uh, his predecessor um, Trajan. It was the Parthians who kept the Romans from advancing any further. It was the Parthians who checked their expansion. Um, they will be playing the Anglo-Saxons. The Anglo-Saxons were the ones, the opportunists, who took advantage of the ability to cross over the North Sea and populate these very fertile lands that were left behind by the Romans. And uh, the Romano-British population were helpless to stop the Anglo-Saxons from infiltrating their society and creating their own, creating their own culture. And this led to the creation of the country of England. So the Anglo-Saxons were very much what, uh, what brought England to England. So that's next week's fixture. The Parthians versus the Anglo-Saxons. And you can vote for whoever you want to advance to the quarterfinal out of those two teams by either visiting the History of the World podcast Facebook page, the Twitter account, the Twitter handle, which is at Hot World Podcast, or the Instagram feed. Um, you can vote on there as well. So uh, just go to any of those forums and vote uh, for who you would like to advance. More details can be found at the History of the World Podcast.com website listener messages and reviews now if you like the podcast and you want to support the podcast then you can just go to the history of the world podcast.com website and click on the patreon link we offer rewards to those of you who uh, accumulate donations who hit milestones in donations and uh, you can go along to the website and find out what exactly you can uh, achieve. You can uh, achieve rewards of uh, gifts through the post, um, key rings and uh, all the way up to T-shirts uh, with the History of the World podcast logo on. And you can also qualify to have your own special episode commissioned on the subject of your choice. How good is that? Well... Just go on along to the history of the world podcast.com, click on the Patreon link to find out more. When you uh, sign up to make uh, a donation through the history of the world podcast.com website, uh, either through the, the Patreon link or even the Buy Me a Book link, you automatically become a member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. And we welcome in this week Tim Nelson. So thank you, Tim, and welcome to our little exclusive gang. Now let's move on to some messages received this week, emails that have been sent in by you lovely people. John Bangsund has written in and said, absolutely brilliant podcast, I discovered it only yesterday, and I'm already on episode 14. I studied a wide range of subjects at university, including many history courses, but I have already learned a lot or put old knowledge into new perspective through this podcast. Looking forward to this journey. Thank you very, very much indeed. Um, next message is from Tom McKenna, who's written in and said, Hi Chris, just wanted to let you know how much I enjoy your podcast. I, am, I really am into all things about history. Your presentation is my favourite source for solid information and it is obvious you enjoy what you are doing. I really look forward to each week's presentation. You're probably like me and are a stickler for detail. Please keep up the great work. 
I am here in not-so-sunny Michigan, USA, but your podcast brighten the day's best to you and yours from Tom. Thank you very much indeed. Jeremy Chamberlain has written in and uh, has put, Hello, Chris. I have a couple of questions about the podcast. Just wanted to let you know that I am still listening and at chapter four after listening for just three and a half months. What are the accomplishments? How much of a one-time donation do I need to accumulate to have a dedicated episode or half episode to a particular subject? All of the tiers can be found on the Patreon page. So you can just go straight there and look at all the tiers and, and see exactly all of the rewards and and what level we have to reach to to get to them on there at, at the current level. So, yeah, just go straight there and, and take a look. Uh, Ewa Mikkonen has written in and said, Hello there, I just found your podcast on Spotify and listened five episodes straight. Great popularisation, very easy to follow. A minor detail, evolution and creation are not for many minds exclusive to one another. Genesis 1.11 is written in mythopoetic language comparable to other ancient narratives with a theological purpose. As a Finnish evangelical Christian, I just wanted to comment briefly on that. Keep up the good work. I wish you well. Thank you so much. You're a very valuable uh, input there. Thank you indeed. Um, Mike, uh, Mike from Canada, I don't seem to have your surname there, Mike, has put in, uh, hi Chris, I just wanted to say I recently came across your podcast on Spotify. I'm really enjoying it. I appreciate the effort you make, you must make to get all of your facts together and still make it a coherent story. Also, I suspect you must take great care to learn proper pronunciation of names, especially in the more exotic languages. I mean, I would have no way of knowing otherwise, but it sounds authentic anyway. Awesome job anyway. Thanks again for putting out such great media. Mike from Canada. I cringe at my um, at my attempts to uh, speak in other people's tongues and dialects, uh, really, Mike, if I'm honest with you. I'm sure I... I do a very average job of of uh, attempting to pronounce a lot of the words. So, uh, but listen, uh, there's no avoiding it. If I'm going to tell the story of the history of the world, I have to sort of try and get my tongue around these uh, these uh, words that are strange to my uh, language. So, just got to go for it, haven't you? I think, and uh, you know, if if I've got it, if I've got it totally wrong. You know, it's, it'd be nice for someone to to let me know. You know, it's. Um, I'm not above criticism by any uh, stretch of the imagination. It's very helpful when you write in and say, uh, if I have mispronounced something, uh, just, you know, would be grateful if you let me know. So thank you very much. Anyway, that's it for another week. Uh, glad to be back with uh, such a great episode as uh, as this one. I really enjoyed this one. Uh, next week, a total switch of focus. We're heading north back to the British Isles again, we'll be uh, we'll be finding out more about Magna Carta. So, a very very uh, famous document, um, and often um, on people's minds when they talk about the the medieval period. Uh, so next week will be Magna Carta, specifically more the story of King John and and what led to the to the twelve uh, fifteen issue of Magna Carta. So until then, thanks for listening. See you next week. 
Be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.